These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. I feel like it's been a while since we've had a proper action-filled adventure on the show, but Ninurta is going to fix that for us. Son of Enlil, god of agriculture, but also hunting and war. Ninurta's stories all revolve around him being a totally awesome dude who kicks serious butt without all the angst and universal philosophical meaning that we got from the other great hero, Gilgamesh. And in fact, his adventures will prove to be so popular that he will continue to be worshipped and talked about well into the Assyrian period, way past the Bronze Age collapse and well into the Iron Age. He is also likely the great hunter Nimrod, mentioned in the Bible, and eventually became a major figure in the demonology of the 16th and 17th centuries CE, under the name Nisroch. With a pedigree like that, how can you not already like him? We know of three main stories about Ninurta in various levels of completeness. Perhaps the most important is one that I am not going to tell today. Ninurta and the Tablet of Destinies is the name usually given to it, and doesn't that already sound like a good movie? And in it, the giant monstrous lion-headed Anzu bird steals the Tablet of Destinies from the god Enlil, Ninurta's father, and Ninurta pursues and battles the monster to retrieve it. There is a bit of tension near the end as to whether Ninurta will keep his prize and claim his father's power, or return it and there is a turtle involved, and a fair bit of scheming. The problem is that while we know that chunks of the story date back to the Sumerian period, since we have fragments of it dated to very early in history, the main chunk of the surviving narrative is from the Babylonian period, and has quite a few Babylonian innovations. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in general. Many of the stories I've already read to you are supplemented with later Akkadian, Babylonian, and even Assyrian sections. But in Ninurta and the Tablet of Destinies, we meet Amorite gods like Dagon and a fair few other anachronisms. This isn't to say that I won't be telling this story, but I am trying to work in chronological eras here. So once I finish Sumerian and Akkadian stories, next up will be Babylonian, and we will look again at Ninurta in this distant future. In case you are wondering, after Babylonian will be Egyptian stories, then what little Canaanite and Hittite literature I can find, then a hard stop at the Bronze Age collapse of the 12th century BCE. At least, that's my current plan for the course of the show. I reckon I already have almost a year of stories picked out just for Sumerian and Akkadian, so it'll be a long time before returning to this. The second great story of Ninurta is the Seven Slain Heroes, referenced indirectly many, many times, but most reputable sources tell me that there are no surviving copies of the story itself. The only version I can find is from a Zakaria Sitchin fan site. And while I will definitely be doing an episode all about Mr. Sitchin, for now it's enough to say that he is very much not a reputable source. To give you a taste, he believes that the seven slain heroes in this tale were in fact nuclear missiles fired from spaceships piloted by aliens. So look forward to that episode. The story I can tell you now, though, is the Lugale. It opens in the throne room of his temple in Nippur. 
with Ninurta sitting at his ease in his throne as he watches a great festival being held in his honor. His muscles bulge and glisten in the firelight of the altar, and his huge beard is perfectly shaped without a hair out of place. He's surrounded by his armory of weapons on the walls and his retinue of minor god retainers as they drink and enjoy the festivities. His awesome, radiant power fills the entire room, and the mortals are overwhelmed with a desire to sing his praise. But then, in the middle of another hymn glorifying the great god, his favorite weapon, the battle mace Shar-Ur, suddenly interrupts with a cry of alarm. Lord Ninurta spoke the inanimate bronze weapon that was also a very chatty minor deity. Can you feel that energy? The heavens have copulated with the earth, and born was a warrior who knows no fear, the Asag. Oh Lord, the Asag has no mother or father. He is a murderer from the mountains, shameless and arrogant, who uses his mighty stature to rise above his station. Already he has made himself king over all the plants in the mountains, and he has given birth to a mighty army of warriors, men made of stones, who strip the trees bare from the land and crush the cities. My lord, this blasphemous creature has erected a throne just like your own and sits in it, deciding the lawsuits of the land even though that is the rightful prerogative of the gods. No one in the region can stand beneath Asag's dread glory, and in their fear, they're elevating this beast to a false god. He even receives offering, as if he were your kin, Lord Dinerta. Listen, mighty god, the people of the mountains are crying out to you. They know that your strength is unrivaled. No army could be effective, but maybe you, with your unmatched strength, can beat the Asag. Every day it grows closer to Sumer, adding territories to its domain. And it says it will take kingship away from you and rule the whole world. You must force this beast into chains and trample its mountains beneath your feet. No weapon is effective against the weight and strength of Asag. Not axe nor spear. And the thing's clever, too, evading all traps. Even you, mighty Ninurta, have never fought a beast so strong. Now Ninurta swore so loudly on hearing this that the heavens trembled and the earth was terrified. His father Enlil was so startled by the noise that he ran out of his palace to see what was the matter, only to see the sky itself darkened and the mountains crumbling around the city. Ninurta beat his thighs and he screamed his fury, the battle lust emanating so strongly from his skin that the high gods across the universe dispersed like frightened sheep. The god rose into the air, riding the eight winds, and with each step he took a mile passed beneath his feet. With one arm he couched a heavy riding lance, and with the other he gripped his battle mace Shar-Ur, which snarled fury at the mountains alongside its master. In place of a banner, he fixed the foul wind to a pole, and the hurricane preceded him like an honor guard, tossing dirt and debris through the air, where it caught the burning flames, it scattered the hot coals, and it lit men on fire. His passage ripped trees from the ground and threw the Tigris River into the air. The people of town were running around in such a panic that they were, in fact, 
bumping into walls. The birds were pressed so hard by the force of his passage that they couldn't lift their heads from the ground, much less fly. Fish were thrown from the river, and animals caught in the open were shredded. The hero Ninurta marched into the rebel lands. When the betraying lord sent messengers, Ninurta slew them out of hand without hearing the message. He crushed the rebel cities and slew the cattle in the fields. The great hero of the gods tied the hands of the captives who had submitted to Asag and bound them all together so that he could murder them more efficiently, dashing a whole line of heads against stones. The once bright mountains darkened and the people grew ill, unable to breathe from terror. They cursed the earth, they cursed the day that Asag had been born and dragged them into this horrible rebellion. Ninurta is no shining paladin. War crimes are not even a concept yet. When conquering a people, especially a civilized people, there would have been a balance between plundering and mercy to be determined on a situational basis. But this, this was no conquest. This was putting down a rebellion, and there can be nothing but the most certain and final punishments for rebellion. Seeing what the rebellious people were forcing him to do to them, the Lord grew ill, and anger filled his heart. That rage manifested his godly power, and his mace Sharer flew away like a bird to scout the mountains for him. When it returned, it embraced its beloved Lord and said, Beware, you mighty Lord, you are a tempest in battle, you are impossible to resist, and you have won your share of battles here. You slew the Kuliana, and the dragon, and the gypsum, and the strong copper, and the six-headed wild ram, and the maglium boat, and the lord Sam Anna, and the bison bull, and the palm tree king, and the Anzu bird, and the seven-headed snake. You've slain them all, but you must not venture into this coming battle, for it is even more terrible. Do not lift your arms to join into this combat. Fix your feet on the ground. Lord Ninurta, the Asag is waiting for you in the mountains. You're blessed with many charms, but you are not the equal of Asag. Do not lead your men into this fight. Ninurta took this counsel from his trusted friend with all seriousness, sitting in the dirt to ponder. He was the son of Enlil and gifted with broad wisdom and he had brought with him vast battalions, and he had come deep into the rebel lands. And here his trusted advisor, his very weapon, was advocating that he give this one a pass. And so he stood, rising from his deliberation, and strapped on his lance and mace, hefting javelin and shield. And when he arrayed for battle, the mountains before him cringed and were driven away. The sun and the moon both abandoned the sky, but Ninurta paid them no mind. He marched to battle in pitch blackness. The Asag was likewise at the head of battle, and when the two armies collided, their champions crashed together first. The Asag, leaping high in the sky and like a collapsing wall, fell upon the champion of the gods. Asag howled as they dueled, his very scream drying up the mountains, ripping trees out tearing at the earth, setting fire to the reeds, and bathing the sky in blood. 
The warriors around him were slain instantly just from his scream, and even in the heavens, An, lord of heaven, fell ill, and the high gods became fearful as pigeons to see this battle. Even mighty Enlil, lord of wind, despaired to his wife Ninlil, My son, my son is my security. He supports my rule. What will happen if I lose him in this battle? But Ninurta, though on the defensive, has not lost yet. He blocks what blows he can and endures what blows he cannot. His mighty power strained against the destructive weight of the Asag beast. But the weight proves too great, and the forces of the gods are pushed back, losing the day. It's here where his trusted companion, his mace Shar-Ur, spoke. My lord, he said, listen to me. We've both been startled by the full extent of the Asag's strength. But if you allow this battle to drag on, there will be hardship in the land. People will be exterminated, and there will be fewer humans to worship and sing your praises. Animals for whom Enlil has decreed a long and productive destiny will go extinct. You must not allow this. Your father sent me a telepathic message, saying you should target the beast's shoulder and liver then you will surely take victory. He's holed up now in a great fortress with a spiked rampart, but somehow you must overcome that wall, and quickly, before this destruction destroys the entire land. Ninurta did not reply to his mace with words, but with actions. He aimed his lance at the mountains and stretched his free arm to the clouds. Yelling like a storm, he commanded the winds, smiting the mountains. When he struck the heavens with his mace Shah-Ur, the heaven itself split open and collapsed on the people below, destroying cities and setting fire to the mountains. The vicious weapon smashed skulls with its teeth and tore out entrails. The crevices in the rebel land filled with blood, and the dogs licked it all up like milk. The enemy dearly regretted ending their worship of Ninurta. But no matter how Ninurta shook the dust, the Asag was unmoved. Shar'ur pleaded again, saying, Please, no matter how much they deserve it, stop unleashing the hurricane through this mountains. The whirlwind is treacherous, and it spreads its damage far wider than you know. But still Ninurta went on a rampage, smashing the heads of everyone until he saw the Asag finally look up. Ninurta brought the rebel lands to silence, and finally stood again before the great beast. With a great swing he attacked the Asag, and the Asag moved to block, but this time Ninurta's swing crushed through the once impenetrable guard. Asag previously had simply been too strong to be taken out with the decapitating strike that Shar'ur had advocated, but now that his soldiers and citizens had been destroyed, Asag found that his strength had fled him, and in short order his intestines fled him too, having been batted out of his gut by another swing of Ninurta's mace. Then Asag's genitals were clubbed into powder, then his skull shattered. The hero had achieved his heart's desire, and the red mist began to fade from his eyes. Ninurta, son of Enlil, began to calm down. In the mountains, the long and bloody day came to an end. 
Lord Ninurta washed the blood from his clothes and wiped the sweat from his brow. He made a prayer of victory over the corpse of his foe and began to dismember and defile the dishonorable dead. As he did this, the gods of the land, those who had survived his berserker fury, crawled in exhaustion to prostrate themselves before him. Ninurta roared in victory, and the cowering supplicants praised him with all their strength. Ninurta gave a victory speech over the ruins of the mountains. But somehow, with the conclusion of the battle, the Sumerians all found that good water no longer came to the fields. The Tigris stopped flooding every year, and cold water piled up in the distant mountains. The canals mudded up, and the primitive agriculture of the day failed, causing a famine. But Inerta had conquered the mountains, and with a few barked orders he rearranged the stones of the land. He created a system of dams and sluice gates, so that the good waters stopped flowing to Asag's palace in the underworld, and flowed instead to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, while the bad waters were diverted away from Sumer to the underworld. Ninurta then founded trading colonies in the mountains to grow the fruits that would not grow in the river valley so that the desires of the gods could be satisfied, and all the gods of heaven praised Ninurta's father for having such a strong and talented son. And in the midst of all this rearranging of the world, there was a woman of striking compassion. Ninma, Ninurta's mother, became concerned that the mountains were now inaccessible. And so she went to her son, and she sang to him of all the good in the mountains, and why mercy really was worthwhile. And Ninurta loved his mother, and was moved by her compassion. And it's really hard to tell exactly what was going on here, but he also changes his mother's name from Ninma to Ninhursag, the more famous name for this goddess. Not really sure what Ninma meant, but Ninhursag means Lady of the Mountains, and thus he hands the power over his conquered mountains to his mother, who makes them beautiful and bountiful, and bear all sorts of nice trees and gems and herbs and honey and wild animals. And seeing that Ninurta is now being reasonable, he next receives a visit from Ardu, goddess of birth, who urged him to set a destiny for all the warriors he has slain. These warriors, recall, were an army of stone men, and having destroyed them, he is now master over the stones they were made from. Lord Ninurta spat in anger, cursing most of the stones. He began with Emery's stone, saying, Since you rose against me in rebellion, and were confident in your strength, I hereby diminish your strength. You will no longer have a place in battle, and will do nothing but polish others' stones. And in this fashion, he individually calls out 45 different kinds of stone, which shows an impressive understanding of geology, if not of narrative flow, and decrees a fate for each of them, each matching the common usage of that stone by the Sumerians. Not all are cursed, since it turns out that only some of the stones joined the army of stone, and so, for example, alabaster is praised and destined for the palace and treasuries. And in the time it took to set a destiny for every sort of rock known to the Sumerians, a huge crowd had gathered, celebrating and praising Ninurta and his great victory. 
Then they all boarded his massive godly barge and sailed down the river back to Nippur, and he entered the city in glory, with war trophies all around them. Enlil, lord of the gods, met his son at the gate to the city and praises him in front of gods and men. He congratulates him for reducing cities to ruined mountains and for breaking the tyranny of the mountains for all time. And the various gods and Ninurta himself take turns praising him for line after line after line. But this is pretty much the end of the Lugale, the epic of Ninurta's battle against the Asag. And so what do we make of all this? A fair bit happens here that can be lost in the excitement of battle. To start with some context, the original version of this tale, as far as we can tell, goes back to about the third dynasty of Ur, the same one we were reading about in the episode King Shulgi's Mailbag, and they had only recently regained control of the region from the nomadic Gutians, who had come down from, wait for it, the mountains. And so this story sounds suspiciously like a revenge fantasy against the people of the mountains, a metaphoric, superheroic justification for the contemporary wars against the people of the mountains. Another thing to note is that many rulers in the Sumerian period, and even much later, took Ninurta to be the model of a proper warrior. Now, was it a matter of them picking him because he exemplified what they already thought was best? Or was it the case that they appreciated his strength and so modeled themselves more closely after him? It's hard to tell, probably a bit of both. But the key here is that we can see through this story the sheer brutality that was considered normal and probably even a good thing. Sha'ur never tells Ninurta to stop because it's horrifically brutal to tie people in long chains and then commit assembly line murder to the now helpless victims. Rather, he's said to be careful, because if Ninurta makes a total wasteland, then there won't be anyone left to enslave and exploit the area's resources. All through the Mesopotamian Bronze Age, Ninurta is a cultural model, and I can't help but wonder if the difference between our modern Geneva Convention ideas of war and the ancient absolute domination idea of war is just one of cultural preferences, as in they choose one way or we choose another, or if theirs really is just a more primitive way. To put it another way, is the difference like language, where their culture is simply different and incomprehensible? Or is it like technology, where ours has just demonstrably progressed above theirs? I mean, it's tempting to simply call them primitive and leave it at that. But if this show has demonstrated anything, is that these people are thinking at more or less the same level that we think at. They lived in cities and were more or less civilized. And besides... It isn't like modern history is short of similar brutalities. We're simply more appalled by them than the Sumerians were, or at least we sometimes pretend to be more appalled by them. It comes down to the questions that help motivate this show in the first place. Were the first people who could write down their thoughts 4,000 years ago the same as we are today or fundamentally different? If the Sumerians had modern technology, internet and nuclear missiles and drone warfare, would the world have been less stable than our current world, or would it 
have looked basically just the same, just with cuneiform writing instead of the alphabet. I don't know. Culture is really a mess to pin down, and so political nowadays in any case that I don't think anyone studies it with impartial motives. To leave that hanging before the show turns into me being an old man yelling at the state of the world, the most interesting thing in the story, aside from the epic fight scenes, is the peculiar and lengthy listing of rocks at the end. Seriously now, I abbreviated it, but that is fully half of the entire text. Why did the writers of this story feel it necessary to write a long list of every known rock and its function? And why would they append that to what is essentially an action adventure? Can you imagine the next Avengers movie devoting half of its runtime to having Thor explain geology? To my mind, this conjures up images of those cheesy videos that would occasionally be shown back in school featuring some celebrity or another we were meant to be engaged by the presence of whoever that is. I remember having to watch a Laserdisc show in elementary school, and yes, Laserdiscs were already old by then, I'm not that old, that featured young Ben Affleck and something about whales. Uh, but with that in mind, it turns out that this may well have actually been the whole point of this story. And to see why, we need to go back to a fundamental aspect of Sumerian culture, writing and the eduba. You see, we already know that the Sumerians were the first to invent writing, the so-called cuneiform system, where wedged-shaped lines were put together to form pictogram characters, rather like modern Chinese. But to memorize all those characters is a bit of a challenge. It isn't like an alphabet where you can learn more or less independently in a couple of weeks. You need a system of schools. And so the Sumerians founded the first educational establishments in human history, the edubas, which were shockingly similar to modern schools. I should probably do an episode on them, since being the place where people learn to write, we have a large number of written accounts from them. But what's important here is that a graduate of the Aduba would need to know how to write every word in the language when they graduated. When we graduate school now, or even when a Chinese person graduates, they don't actually know every word in the language because we live in literate societies and can pick up many words through context and experience. But in Sumerian times, they were not surrounded by writing the way that we are today, and there would be very few literate people that any given scribe would be able to interact with. And so, if you got a job as a scribe for a rock quarry, or a stone merchant, or a builder, or really any sort of tradesman, but you forgot the word for emery stone or alabaster, then it would be very difficult to simply look it up. And so a key feature in the Sumerian curriculum was to write out long lists of words related to a topic, copying them over and over while the instructor reminded you of the meanings and readings of each. And archaeologists have in fact recovered many of these lists, in everything from the scratchy hand of the neophyte to the practiced hand of the student ready for graduation. And these were terribly boring to copy over and over for hours or days at a time, though obviously necessary, and we even have texts from students complaining about how boring it is, as well as 
texts from students complaining about being caned for too often drifting off of topic. If only I was caned for drifting off of topic, this would be a much shorter show. But wouldn't it be easier to remember all the different kinds of rocks if, instead of simply writing out the 45 different varieties over and over, you instead had a story with a popular action hero defeating an army of those rocks in battle, then setting out their destiny as the outcome of the war? And so we can see that this tale, and likely many others that we have and will discuss, were copied and survived today because they serve some sort of pedagogical purpose in the Edubas, the Sumerian schools. To be sure, not all of them are as directly educational, and the scribal teachers did believe in writing literary works simply for their own sake, but Ninurta teaches geology is essentially the schoolhouse rock of 4,000 years ago. But while we're talking about knowledge, join me next week as we round out the major gods with a look at the god of knowledge, Ea, and some of his adventures. He's shown up a lot already, but let's take a closer look at the master of creation, wisdom, civilization, and water. It's going to be another episode that reveals a lot about how the ancients saw their world. Thank you for listening.